Crowdflower was a company started in 2007 by Lucas Buwald, an entrepreneur and computer scientist. Crowdflower solved some of the data labeling problems which were not being solved by Amazon Mechanical Turk. A decade after starting Crowdflower, the company was sold for several hundred million dollars. Today, data labeling has only grown in volume and scope, but Lucas has moved on to a different part of the machine learning stack, tooling for hyperparameter search and machine learning monitoring. Lucas joins the show to talk about the problems he was solving with Crowdflower, the solutions that he developed as part of that company, and the efforts with his current focus, Weights and Biases, a machine learning tooling company. If you are a writer, then you might be interested in writing for Software Engineering Daily, either articles or helping with research and preparation for these shows. Send me an email, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com if you're interested. Also, I am investing in software companies. If you are building some kind of software company or infrastructure company, send me an email, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. Lucas Bewald, welcome to the show. It's great to be here. You started Crowdflower, which is now Figure 8, back in 2007. Explain the problem you were solving in 2007 with Crowdflower. Sure. And I was really early with this problem, I realize now. But I had been working at Yahoo and then a startup called PowerSet that became Microsoft Bing. And we were building machine learning models to deploy into production to make search engine results better. And we had to collect lots of training data to teach the algorithms how to run. And that turned out to be kind of the hardest part for building machine learning back then, and some would argue even today. And so I started Crowdflower to help companies collect training data for their machine learning models. So, you know, back then it was typically applications were a search and e-commerce did a lot of search. And then over time, as image and audio applications got better, we started doing more autonomous vehicles and things like that. Why wasn't this problem solved by Mechanical Turk? Ooh, good question. It was somewhat solved by Mechanical Turk. So I was a heavy user of Mechanical Turk actually before I started Crowdflower. And there were parts of it that worked pretty well. It was a very low barrier to entry. But I think the vision of Mechanical Turk where you would put labeling tasks out into the ether and then people would just work on them, it wasn't really realistic for real world applications. So a lot of labeling tasks seem kind of obvious if you just think about the sort of platonic ideal of this situation. And then actually the details make them hard. So I'll give you an example. Say you're trying to label pedestrians for your autonomous vehicle, right? So that's obviously very important, right? You don't want your car, you want your car to know where the pedestrians are. And if you know they're crossing in front of your car, you want your car to stop. So that seems like a simple task that humans would be really good at, right? Like identifying you know, humans in, a, in an image. Uh, in fact, you know, humans are excellent at it, but there's lots of details that come up if you start to actually look at real world examples, right? Like one I remember is, is what if there's a human on a billboard, right? Should that get labeled as a person? And, and that actually kind of depends on, you know, what you're doing downstream or, you know, if you see a human and the bottom half of the human is occluded by something and you're trying to put a bounding box around them, should you put the bounding box around, you know, where you guess the bottom of the human is, right? Or, you know, what if you see a human in a wheelchair, should you like include the wheelchair in the bounding box? Like what if you see a baby carriage and you know that there's a baby or you're guessing there's probably a baby inside there, you know, should you include that? Should the bounding box include the, you know, maybe the parent that's pushing the baby carriage and the carriage should just include the parent. All these details that turn out to be incredibly important. 
The big trouble that Mechanical Turk had was that you would post into their marketplace a task and you couldn't really easily communicate with the people doing the task. And so it was hard to get the level of quality that companies needed to make their machine learning algorithms work. What kinds of labeling problems did Crowdflower specifically solve? Can you go into a little more detail over the the labeling problems it solved and what it was not capable of solving? Totally. We were a horizontal tool, so we did lots of different problems. Like you can log into our platform and set up all kinds of different tasks. And you know, the kinds of tasks that were common changed over the course of the the time I was running it. And I think a lot of the change was really due to the machine learning tasks that were possible. In the early days, I remember one very common task that you wouldn't necessarily guess would be common was parsing addresses. So this happens a lot because companies will have addresses in a CRM and they want to know the addresses of, you know, where all their customers are. They want to know like which parts of the addresses is like the the physical address, you know, what's the zip code, what's, you know, the street and so on. And so they would set up this task, which is another one that sounds super simple until you start looking at real world addresses, right? And then you deal with, you know, do you want the headquarters of the business or do you want every branch location? Do you want the, you know, some often places will have a delivery address and a physical address. And then if you start looking at international addresses, it can be super hard to parse. Like I remember looking at Irish addresses and that looking like, you know, it, it would almost seem like something you'd tell someone at the gas station, like the, the address would be like, oh, like, you know, past the big building and then down by the rock over there on the left, right? And so a super important task to businesses that's still, I think, not totally solved. You know, then over time, we started to see more and more diverse sets of especially image applications. So we would see things like I mean, I remember, I just, I'm just thinking off the top of my head of things I, I really remember, but there was things of like looking inside people's ears and saying if they had an ear infection, which is a pretty easily labeling task actually for laymen, I think, um, or at least, you know, it can be super gross and clear if someone has an infection or looking at cells and picking out, you know, even counting the number of cells in a, in a slide can be important for medical applications. It was really all over the board. I mean, it was basically all the different applications of machine learning that you, you see today, like you know, as autonomous vehicles and autonomous delivery stuff got popular, there's lots of things that those companies need to do, like something called semantic segmentation, where you literally try to take every pixel in an image and label, you know, is this part of a road? Is it part of a sidewalk? Is it part of, you know, a tree? Is it safe to drive? And I think a lot of people maybe don't realize that all these different tasks are actually how machine learning works underneath the surface, right? So, you know, the reason that eBay can can show you reasonable search results is because they've had lots and lots of people label, you know, this is a good search result for this kind of query. This is a bad search result for this kind of query. And then built an algorithm to basically kind of automate that process. Tell me about some of the most difficult times in running Crowdflower. Well, you know, we had kind of two big pivots that were pretty hard, right? So I'll tell you, like, one thing that happened was we had an on-demand business, but it was very hard to predict the volume. So when I started the company, we basically priced per label that, that someone wanted to collect. And, and what was tough about that was that companies themselves often didn't know how many labels they were going to collect. So it made it very, very hard to forecast the volume of labels that someone was going to collect. And that made it very, very hard for us to forecast our revenue. And that might seem like it's not just a business problem. You know, then it makes it hard to know how many engineers you can safely hire, how many salespeople you can hire. And so it often felt like we were really running, you know, by the the skin of our teeth. And it felt like we were a little bit maybe misaligned with our 
customers and that we wanted to kind of push them to get as many labels as possible. The challenge was that the customers didn't often necessarily need so many labels if they, if they labeled it well or something, right? But we, I realized the whole company was set up to actually encourage customers to do as much labeling as they want, like not get as much value out of the labels as they could. And so we made this really hard decision to pivot to selling our software as a SaaS technology offering that would you know, help customers collect the label. So we would just price that out as a SaaS piece of software. And then on top of that, like a marketplace of labels where they could you know, request labels to get collected from, from humans. As part of that change, we actually had to let go a huge number of people, especially in sales and support is almost you know, half the company was shrinking from maybe 80 people down to, to 30 people or so. And that's, I mean, it's the worst experience for the, the people that are affected by it. It was a really tough call to make. You know, it was really hard on, on everyone. It was hard on the people that, extremely hard on the people that left. It was hard, you know, on the people that stayed to, you know, work at a much smaller company. It really felt like a reset, you know, for everyone, even though we'd been doing it for, um, you know, for I think five or six years at that point. So over this 11 year long haul that you were with the company, there were a lot of changes in the market and you've already touched on some of these. What were the other changes in the market that altered labeling requirements for training data? The biggest change that we experienced over the 11 years of running Crowdflower was was a change in the market from kind of a desert where machine learning wasn't considered to be something interesting to work on. You know, investors considered it a liability more than an advantage to a really hot space. So, you know, for the first six, seven years, we didn't have any competitors. And that really wasn't a good thing, right? That was just because it wasn't really an interesting space to anyone. You know, we would try to figure out what conferences to go to. And there weren't really conferences that made sense where people would be buying software to, you know, towards the end, it started to become a really hot space with, you know, like lots of formidable competitors. And now, you know, I go to conferences and I see tens or, you know, maybe even more labeling companies and people have, have sort of decided that labeling is like a really meaningful space and labeling for machine learning, you know, it's a standalone venture backable business. And and I would say, you know, for the first the first half decade that I was running Crowdflower, that was definitely not the case. People thought that the market was too small. In fact, I remember a, a VC telling me that they thought the total market for what we were doing was $4 million of annual revenue. And we'd already, we were at, I think, $3 million of annual revenue at that point. So they were very negative on the space that we were in. Today, you work on Weights and Biases, which is a new company. How did your experience with Crowdflower inform the work with Weights and Biases? Well, when, when I sold Crowdflower, I thought a lot about kind of the things that I liked about Crowdflower and the things that were hard about Crowdflower. And I felt like, my favorite thing, the thing that I felt like I could really dedicate my life to is supporting the people doing machine learning, like the actual practitioners. So, you know, when we started Crowdflower, we couldn't really sell right into machine learning practitioners. Like they just didn't have enough budget. They weren't really good buyers. And so, you know, I'd go to CMO conferences and I'd go to CIO conferences because those were the people that were really buying the Crowdflower software kind of on behalf of the machine learning practitioners. And you know, we aimed a lot of our marketing really at the buyer. And that was kind of hard for me. I found it kind of counterintuitive often to sell into CIOs and CMOs. You know, I was never a CIO or a CMO and, you know, it'd be kind of even hard to like make small talk at those conferences. Whereas when I would go to academic machine learning conferences, it was much more fun for me. It was, it was much more exciting to me, the, the things that people were working on. And so I really wanted to build a company that was all around the machine learning practitioner 
themselves. And I felt like it would be a lot of fun to just build more stuff for the practitioner. And I felt like the market was ready for a company that just sold into practitioners themselves. That was really the the core thinking was that, you know, I really like this customer and I really wanted to make more stuff for this very specific customer. So in a way, it's an extension of a lot of the stuff I worked on at Crowdflower, but instead of kind of starting with a, you know, a solution like I did with Crowdflower, it was starting with a customer in mind and sort of doing an open-ended exploration of the things that that customer profile might want. Why is your company called Weights and Biases? It was actually my co-founder's idea, but I think it kind of reflects the fact that we are completely on the side of the ML practitioner because it makes no sense to anyone else. So, you know, Weights and Biases is a technical term inside of stats or machine learning or in deep learning. And it's basically the, the coefficients that you have in your model. So a deep learning model will consist of numbers that are called weights or biases. But I think the reason we really liked the name was that we really wanted to make the point that our company at its core is on the side of the ML practitioner. So, you know, we're not concerned if we have a name that makes no sense <laughs> to anyone else because they're, they're not our target market. You have a quote on the Weights and Biases website. Those who do not track training are doomed to repeat it. What does that mean? <laughs> That's a controversial quote. I'm glad you found that quote. The idea behind a lot of what we do at Weights and Biases is around what's called uh, reproducibility in machine learning. So maybe some of your listeners will have heard of something people call the reproducibility crisis. And this is a problem that I think is particular to machine learning, although I, you know, with some of my testing, I have issues with this with regular software, but it's much worse in machine learning. So unlike with writing conventional software, um, machine learning can be quite non-deterministic. And so it can be quite hard to reproduce the models that you built in the past. That's a huge issue, right? So it's a, an issue, it's a safety issue, frankly, you know, because if you're not careful, it can be very hard to kind of you know, even reproduce the models that you maybe deploy into something super important, like a self-driving car or some kind of health application. But it's also a practical issue, you know, just for, for doing testing and understanding what your, your models are doing, right? If you don't know exactly what went into the training of a model, it can be very hard to kind of reach conclusions about what to do next. Or if you want to reevaluate some conclusion made in the past, it can be hard to figure out what was going on. So what we say is that you should carefully track your training or else you're going to end up doing a thing that everyone in the field does, which is just rerunning your model training over and over. And in the past, rerunning model training was maybe not such a big deal. I would argue it was never a really good thing to do. But as models become more and more expensive to train, like you know some of the open AI models like GPT-3 that we're hearing a lot about these days require you know, millions of dollars of compute just to, to train one time. I mean, I think a, a more typical model might be maybe thousands of dollars of compute to train, but nevertheless, you shouldn't be really ever retraining your models. You should be carefully monitoring everything that went into your training and learning from that training. And that's a lot of what the weights and biases tools help you with is, is just passively tracking all the things that went into the training so that you don't have to do your training um, over and over again. If you have a new question about it, or you're not sure exactly what you were doing six months ago when you trained a model that suddenly becomes important because it's getting deployed into production. Can you say more about the tooling that machine learning practitioners need and what you envision needing to build at Weights and Biases? Yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot of new tools necessary because 
I think that machine learning differs in some fundamental ways from conventional software development. I know not everyone agrees with this, right? So I think some people would say, you know, machine learning is just kind of another sort of sub-branch of software development. And there's truth to that. But my perspective is that machine learning differs in some key ways. So the, the fundamental difference here is that instead of writing code that does something, you're really writing code that generates code that, that does something, right? And so the code that you write as an ML practitioner looks a lot like kind of standard software development, but the code that gets generated by the code that you write, that gets trained some set of data and then deployed, that's quite different, right? So, you know, just some simple examples, right? So the, the models that you train, the, the code that's automatically generated, these files tend to be much bigger, right? So, you know, a model, unless it's trying to be small, trying hard to be small, could be hundreds of megabytes or even gigabytes of essentially binary data. So first of all, just versioning those models can be tricky. And you can imagine because you're automatically generating these models, you probably end up generating a lot more of them, right? So the path is a lot different than conventional software development. So people try to check these models into Git and you know they're too big and they don't branch in the same way that normal software development does. And they don't really diff in the same way either, right? So like, you know, you could train the same model on two different days on the exact same data, but, you know, slightly different graphics cards used for the training. And you'll end up with models that are essentially doing the same thing, right? Practically, they're they're the same model, but every single number in that model, every single piece of data in that model is going to be different, right? So the diff would be, you know, 100% diff, right? Whereas like with software, you know, typically you'll have these versions that kind of diff nicely. So all those things kind of point to the fact that version control for these models is quite a different animal, right? And then debugging is totally different too, right? Because you can't really step through the code in the same way that you can step through, you know, code that you train with kind of conventional software development, right? So, you know, these models aren't trying to be built for anyone to understand them. And in fact, you know, they're sort of like famously more and more ununderstandable. So, you know, you see a lot of companies that talk about explainable AI and you might think that problem's getting solved, but actually these companies exist because the, this problem is getting worse and worse and worse, right? Like kind of at every step, we sort of see that making the models more complicated, deeper, they call it in the field, actually makes them harder and harder to explain. So the debugging, you know, gets super tricky. And, you know, even the sort of like CI is a totally different animal because you don't always expect the model to always be perfect, right? So, you know, you kind of, it's tough to have tests like in, in traditional software development where you'd expect a hundred percent pass rate or you wouldn't deploy the thing that can be unrealistic for the types of models that you want to build. If it's doing kind of tricky visual recognition and you have millions of test cases, you sort of have to do some kind of statistical thresholding versus the opposite. So I kind of think that actually for lots and lots of things where there's an analog in conventional software development, the problem's the same with machine learning, but the solution might be different, which is why I think you see lots of new tools developing around, you know, machine learning production workflows in particular. If I make a dashboard for my machine learning models, what does that dashboard look like? What kinds of materials and information do I want in my machine learning visualization? That's a great question. And it definitely depends on the application that you're doing. So maybe let's let's pick a specific application, you know, in particular, just to you know kind of make it concrete. So why don't we why don't we just talk about, say you're trying to build a robot that can that can move around autonomously and not, you know, crash into things. So, you know, maybe you're making a model for that robot that just identifies the things in the world as it, as it moves around. So there's different things you'd want to see 
on your dashboard. So, you know, one thing that you're going to want to see is kind of all the inputs into your model. So, you know, when you build these models, you make a lot of choices. These things are called hyperparameters. And a, a typical hyperparameter might be like something called learning rate, which is like how fast I want my model to learn as it gets new training data. But in a, in a real world case, there'd be lots of these kind of hyperparameters that could be hard to interpret. I guess another one might be maybe the resolution of the images that I'm, I'm feeding into my model. And so one thing that you, you'd want to look at is these hyperparameters. And then another thing that you'd want to look at is kind of how the model performance changes as it trains. So typically, as you train your model, you're going to be actually testing the performance at the same time to know if it's getting better or worse. And this is something that you as a human, human really want to, want to look at, right? I mean, one simple reason you want to look at it is to know when to stop the training, <laughs> right? Because you know, at some point, your model is going to stop improving as you feed more data in, and you're just going to, going to want to stop the training so that your com computer can do something else. But there's more subtle things you might want to look at. So people want to look at what they call the gradients of their model. And so this is something that, that sort of shows how much the parameters are changing, the individual parameters, and kind of like at what points of the model the parameters are changing. So, you know, you might expect that the parameters that are kind of closer to the inputs would be changing the most in the beginning. And then over time, it would be the parameters deeper in the model that would be changing more. So that's something we'll kind of look for for diagnostic reasons. And then there's things that you want to look at to just get kind of a feel for what the model's doing. So it's it's dangerous to kind of just look at the statistics of the model. It's often a really good thing to just look at as the model trains some particular data points and kind of see what the model's doing. Because you know machine learning is is ripe for kind of subtle problems. I mean, I remember I was training a model in my little robot, you know, maybe about a year ago, and it was having trouble with the images just that it was looking at um, around my room. And it was especially having trouble when the images weren't centered. And then I learned actually, I, I just, just from looking at the data, it was just anytime the, the object wasn't right in the center of the image, it was having trouble with it. And then I actually learned that the sort of standard image data sets are collected by humans. So they're mostly centered. And it's a kind of a common phenomenon that you know, robots get confused when they're trained on data off the internet. So there's sort of this mix of like, you know, specific examples that you want to look at. And then like lots of graphs of different things that are happening in your model. You also might have different things that you're optimizing at the same time. So like a typical self-driving car company training this kind of model, they would look at not just the accuracy of the model, but they would look at, you know, the accuracy of the model on pedestrians and the accuracy of the model on bicyclists and maybe the accuracy of the model in the snow. And they would be, you know, creating a dashboard of all these things because, you know, obviously a highly accurate model that, you know, just misses the rare case when there's a, a pedestrian on a bicycle is not a model that's, that's safe to deploy. So it's really important to build these big dashboards where you can see um, everything going on. And then they get even more interesting because, you know, when it comes time to decide what model to deploy or try to figure out what's the right, uh, say, learning rate, you actually want to look at lots of models together. So people build these sort of meta dashboards where they compare, you know, two or even, you know, hundreds of thousands of models together to try to find patterns and what's the best model to deploy or what's the sort of like best set of inputs that's likely to make a model that's safe to deploy. All right, let's get into a specific engineering term for machine learning research. What is a hyperparameter search? Ah, good question. So hyperparameter search, it's something that machine learning researchers do where they try to find the best set of what's called um, hyperparameters for their model. Now, I need to really define what hyperparameter is. So when you build a model, when you, when you build a machine learning model, actually what you're really doing is searching for the best parameters. 
So it's sort of like the best numbers that's going to kind of make this machine learning equation um, do the thing that you want. But then there's questions of like, how do you pick the best parameters? And those things are called hyperparameters. So I, was, I keep mentioning learning because that's an intuitive one, which is like, you know, every time a model sees a new set piece of data that it hasn't seen before, maybe it's confused about how much should it update its belief about the world. So, you know, if you have like lots of data that's similar, like a high learning rate um, might be fine, right? But if you have data that's, that's quite diverse, or maybe there's some mislabelings in your data, you might want to use a lower learning rate because you might not want the model to overreact to one piece of data. It could be, you know, there's something mislabeled about it or, you know, just something weird about it. And so, you know, as you kind of build models, you might wonder what's the best learning rate to use. And so what a hyperparameter search would do over a learning rate is it would try to actually build models with different learning rates. So, and then it would look at a held out set of data and see, okay, which of these learning rates led me to the most accurate model on a kind of held out set of, of data. So you just, you'd say, okay, you know, when I have a high learning rate, maybe it's 80% accurate. When I have a lower learning rate, maybe it's 85% accurate, but then if it's too low, maybe the model, the accuracy starts dropping, right? So I should use that kind of sweet spot of a middle tier learning rate. But you know, of course, in the real world, you have thousands of these kind of input parameters and you don't have infinite computing resources. So it can be tricky to figure out what's the best set of learning rates to try. We've done a few shows recently on hyperparameter tuning and hyperparameter search. Can you explore the process of looking at different hyperparameters in, in more detail and how this affects a machine learning development process? Yeah, it's a good question. I think, I mean, in the real world, hyperparameter tuning is not as pure as it kind of sounds because the compute resources can be so expensive. So you might think like, well, you know, you just kind of one time you try every set of hyperparameters or you try a ton of hyperparameters and then you deploy your model. But in the real world, it can get a lot messier than that because one thing that's happening is you're often getting new training data, right? So for lots of applications, again, you know, say you're a car company, you're probably collecting new images from your test cars or maybe even um, your customers' cars, and those are getting labeled or, you know, for, for any application, you're often collecting more data and your requirements are changing. And you kind of want to look at the hyperparameter searches that you did in the past to build an intuition about what hyperparameters are likely to work, right? So you wouldn't necessarily want to try every learning rate every time, right? Like you might decide, you know what, like typically on this application, lower learning rates tend to be better. So I'm just going to try kind of a smaller range of, of lower learning rates. And, you know, we, we have seen kind of more and more companies actually like Google's AutoML or I think Data Robot, you know, has a, a tool like this that, you know, just completely automates the whole process and just finds the best set of parameters. I think, you know, a lot, one reason that people don't use those as much as you might think, I mean, they certainly sound useful, they are useful, but an issue can be that there's just so many hyperparameters. And actually, there's kind of more and more hyperparameters. I'll, I'll try to give you some other kind of interesting examples. Like, you know, one thing people might do is, you know, they might decide that, you know what, if I like rotate the image a little bit, I can like kind of feed that through with the same label, but you, you don't want to rotate the image too much because then maybe you're really distorting the data. So there's sort of like, you know, some randomization of my input images that's called data augmentation. And then you have all these new hyperparameters about how much do I rotate an image? Maybe I squish the image a little bit. And suddenly I have this, this whole new set of hyperparameters to try. So I think typically there's sort of like a research phase where people are trying big sets of hyperparameters and then maybe um, a production phase where before each model gets deployed, there might be like a smaller hyperparameter search over you know, some subset of the possibly useful 
on parameters before the algorithm is deployed. But I would say we see from our customers quite a range of feelings about hyperparameter search. I mean, some really like to do these gigantic hyperparameter searches to eke out the last tiny bit of accuracy in a model. And then some of our customers think that that's like really wasteful of compute resources. And also it kind of keeps you from, you know, really developing deep intuitions about your data, which they, they feel is important. And so they will do much less uh, emphasis on, on hyperparameter search. And, and I think there's also kind of a dichotomy between some people do the process in a very, very organized way where they just kind of let the computer run for months and then spit out a number, whereas other people are kind of watching the process and tweaking it and, and making changes. Describe the ways in which a machine learning experiment can be parallelized and how your tooling helps with that. You know, machine learning can be parallelized in lots of different ways. I mean, I think it's actually one of these sort of embarrassingly parallel problems. There's, there's sort of many different points where you can parallelize it. So one point where you can parallelize it is actually in the hyperparameter search itself, right? So, you know, if you're, if you're training different models to see what the best set of hyperparameters is, you can actually kick off lots of runs at the same time, and you can just run those on completely different machines typically. Now, it's not necessarily ideal because in a, in a more advanced hyperparameter search, you'd want to be able to learn you know, from each run so that you try a better set of hyperparameters each time. So in the academic literature, typically the hyperparameter searches people talk about that are smarter using strategies that you might have heard of called Bayesian optimization, that sort of uses the past runs to decide what the next run is to do. And so if you parallelize those strategies, you know, if you just ask the Bayesian optimization algorithm to, to give you, you know, the best run to try next based on some past data, if you parallelize that, you might, you know, your algorithm might just give you, tell you to try the same set of hyperparameters eight times, then it's a huge waste. So one of the things that our software does, and it's not the only software to do it, but we do do it is we help you, you know, if, if you know you're going to run 10 runs in parallel, our hyperparameter optimization software will help you pick 10 runs so that they're kind of spread out over the space. So you try kind of 10 different things as opposed to trying the same thing 10 times. But I would say that's a very good point to parallelize because you can even kind of change your parallelization over time. So, you know, if you have lots of new machines available, it's pretty easy to kind of spin up to lots more hyperparameter search runs at once. And then, you know, if you're more constrained resources, you can you can shut down those machines without too much cost. So I would say that's kind of the easiest place to parallelize things. You know, then kind of in more advanced research topics, you can actually try to do your training on multiple machines at the same time. And that is kind of an active area of research, but a lot of our customers do do it. We actually don't help you do that because there's good frameworks like PyTorch and TensorFlow will help you with that. But what we help you with is monitoring. And the monitoring actually can get really unwieldy as you start to run on lots of machines at once. And it's also really important because these budgets start to get expensive, right? So if you're spinning up a whole bunch of machines with lots of GPUs, you're going to be chewing up, I mean, every, many dollars per minute, right? So you're going to want to know if something's going haywire. You know, at some point of parallelization, it's virtually guaranteed that, you know, a few of your machines are going to be acting weird. And so our software will help you pinpoint that super quickly. And then there's even sort of like a finer grain parallelization, which I would say used to be a research topic. I think now is becoming just sort of standard practice, but it's also a bit of a pain still, which is paralyzing across a single run across multiple GPUs. So a typical ML training machine might have eight GPUs on it. And so people want to kind of have each of those GPUs working at the same time on a single process often. And that's a little bit simpler than paralyzing across lots of machines at once. So I'd say those are sort of the three places where people paralyze. And a lot of people do all three of those at once. 
is it hard for a machine learning engineer to program the parallelism or is it just like a configuration setting to easily parallelize? <laughs> that depends on who you ask. So the, the software does have configuration settings to, to help you with this. So TensorFlow and PyTorch will help you, but I think that it is pretty tricky because to do it right often requires violating some of the assumptions that are in the academic literature. So I think until recently, a lot of the ML papers would assume things like, you know, kind of when you, like that all your data is getting fed into your model one at a time. Like that was kind of an important assumption where they actually call it a batch. So it'd be like, you know, you're basically, your model gets a batch of data and then it updates and then it gets another batch and then it updates. And so, you know, if you're on different machines, it's not like realistic anymore. And so your kind of model is like changing parameters based on data, you know, in sort of an unknown sequence. And so there's sort of like this, academic question of like, what should the learning rate be? Like, how should you train models in this world? And then there's also this, I guess I would call it kind of a DevOps question of like, is this like same thing to do? Like, where are the bottlenecks in this communication? Is it actually kind of too expensive to communicate across these machines to even make it worth it to run it on multiple machines? And I think that's where you hear a lot about MLOps these days and a lot about kind of collaboration between DevOps and machine learning. I mean, I will say I kind of came through more of a machine learning point of view on this. And so, you know, kind of setting up networks for multiple machines to communicate with them quickly was really not obvious to me. And it's been, it's been really fun. I have a, an actual, one of my co-founders, Sean was not my co-founder at my previous company, but uh, was my co-founder at Weights and Biases. And, you know, he's really good at this and it's been really fun to kind of learn from him how to, how to set all this stuff up to work really well. And I mean, he kind of finds it trivial, I feel like to get you know, this distributed training happening, but it's definitely not trivial for me. So I think this is one of those areas where people need sort of a pretty diverse set of skills. And I think it's really useful for kind of cross-functional collaboration. How does data augmentation work or auto-generated data? Does that actually provide value to training a machine learning model? If I take some data and make some synthetic data to augment my current data set? I will say it is an open research question, but I think the trend is that it definitely can help. So there's sort of different forms of this, which I think are sort of different levels of certain that it works, right? So the, the thing that definitely works on images and audio is kind of slightly modifying the data. So one thing that, you know, machine learning does, which can be really frustrating for humans because, you know, humans generalize incredibly well. So like we don't kind of hone in on one specific part of the data and just focus on it. Machine learning is, is very willing to kind of hone in on a specific thing in the data and just sort of overemphasize it, right? So like, you know, if it's like always a black pixel in the upper left, when you're looking at a toaster, it can be pretty hard to get machine learning algorithms to not just always think, okay, if I see a black pixel in the upper left, it's definitely a toaster when that was just a weird artifact of the data. And there's lots of different ways to kind of combat that. And I think a lot of machine learning really is designed to kind of help with that problem that's called overfitting. But one of the best ways is actually data augmentation. And it, it can be very intuitive, right? So like I was talking about sort of rotating a data a little bit, right? So like if it's a picture of a toaster and then I just rotate the image 10 degrees, it's still definitely a picture of a toaster, right? And so that can be a way to make it seem like you have lots more training data than you did, right? So if I have a finite amount of labels, if I start rotating the images or stretching the images or slightly changing the colorization of the images, that can make it seem like I have actually lots more data. And I think that's definitely a good idea, right? You can mess things up, right? Like if I turn the toaster completely upside down, that might have an unintended consequence, but you know, for like a satellite photo, you know, you can rotate the, the image 360 degrees and it's probably the same thing. So 
it requires some domain expertise and some care, but I think data augmentation would be considered definitely best practice in machine learning. The thing that I think is still somewhat controversial, a lot of people are experimenting with it, and I think there's some um, success cases, is generating synthetic data, right? So the idea here is like, you know, video games, for example, are so realistic that why not use them as inputs for machine learning? And the, the thing in the video game is that you actually know what every pixel stands for because you know the underlying mechanism that, say, generated a scene with like a road and a car. You know which pixels correspond to a road and a car. So instead of taking a photo and like kind of having a human painstakingly label it after the fact, you, you, know, you have a graphics engine that generates a road and a car and actually generates the labels at the same time. So in that way, you get infinite numbers of training data. So it sounds really promising, especially since a lot of companies will spend millions and millions of dollars on um, data labeling. And I would say it's starting to work. So you know, I, I did a little bit of um, research on this myself at OpenAI briefly, and some of the work that I worked on a little bit and, and OpenAI worked on a lot actually showed that um, synthetic data alone could help a hand learn to manipulate a Rubik's Cube, which is pretty cool. And I think most self-driving car companies these days are looking into this, but I wouldn't say that generating synthetic data is standard best practice yet, but it seems promising and interesting. There are numerous machine learning frameworks, TensorFlow, PyTorch. Do you have any strong opinions on what framework should be used and for what kinds of applications? It's a good question. I don't have strong opinions, and maybe I shouldn't have strong opinions as someone that makes tools that kind of support all the frameworks. But I'll, I'll tell you sort of the, and, and we see people from all these different frameworks in our tools. So I'll kind of tell you the sort of the ontology of them, I guess. So TensorFlow and PyTorch are, are comparable. And there's, it's a little bit of like a VI versus Emacs thing. They've kind of, at this point, copied all of each other's features in, in my view. So, you know, at first PyTorch was sort of like what they call dynamically generating the compute graph and TensorFlow wasn't, but then they both sort of, now they both do both, right? And so PyTorch is thought to be a little bit lighter weight, maybe a little bit more popular among researchers. TensorFlow is thought to be a little bit more heavyweight, maybe a little more performant. But, you know, it does seem like the trend over the last year has been people moving from TensorFlow to PyTorch, but un- unclear. I think that's still, you know, unsettled, which is the better framework. But they're the two most low-level frameworks. So they're basically, um, at their core, they're for like kind of doing the math um, underlying machine learning. And then Keras is kind of a higher level framework built on top of TensorFlow. And so Keras kind of makes TensorFlow easier to use, but it's not like a training wheels. It's more like something that you just want to use if you have normal applications. And so I would almost always recommend um, Keras in the same way that you'd normally recommend somebody uses Python instead of C. And PyTorch now has a couple different higher level things built on top of it. So there's one called FastAI, there's one called PyTorch Lightning, and there's one called PyTorch Ignite. And I think the jury is still out on which of those is going to become dominant. I think PyTorch Lightning is getting very popular. And FastAI was actually built for a course, although it's a it's kind of a cool standalone framework also. And a version two is coming out, which we're, people are pretty excited about. And then sort of orthogonal to that, off to the side, there's other frameworks like Scikit is an old framework and a beautifully done framework, but it doesn't handle deep learning that well. So for kind of all non-deep learning applications, you're probably better off using Scikit, with the one exception of when you're kind of handling very high volumes of data, there's Spark has an ML framework that works really well with Spark if you're already using that. And then there's also um, some specialized framework for what's called boosted trees that work well in certain applications. So there's something called LightGBM and XGBoost. And I would say that covers all the frameworks we regularly see. There's always kind of new ones coming along, like there's new um, programming languages, but you know that would cover 99% of 
the use cases we see. Do you have any idea what kinds of tools we need to help debug machine learning code? I mean, I think it's tricky. I think we haven't necessarily seen all the tools there might be yet. One of the differences about debugging machine learning code versus debugging conventional code is that when you debug machine learning code, you need to look a lot at sort of like the aggregate effects of what the code's doing. So I feel more like a scientist, I think, (laughs) debugging machine learning code versus debugging my non-machine learning code. So like, you know, when I write like, you know, some front-end React stuff, I'm mostly kind of walking through what's happening. And I guess there are certain types of code that also feel like this, but, you know, machine learning is the most extreme where I'm typically looking at kind of statistics on what's going on. And so, you know, I think weights and biases has an important role here to play for showing people what's going on to help them debug their code. But you know, there might be kind of smarter things that sort of help people, you know, point exactly to where the problem is. We haven't really made something like that yet, but I've seen some interesting research on it. And I think a lot of the stuff around sort of explainable AI might help a lot with debugging. But I guess the sort of the state of affairs right now is that debugging machine learning is really hard and (laughs) people should definitely use like any tool they can possibly find that, you know, might help them with that. But I also think when you're trying to deploy machine learning, because the debugging process is so hard, you really need to budget a lot of extra time to getting that machine learning model into deployment. And, and that's the world, you know, right now, as of what, July um, 2020, like, you know, things, things will certainly change rapidly in the field. July 2020, one of the elevated projects right now is GPT-3. Have you looked into G- GPT-3 in much detail? Yeah, I mean, I've, of course, I've seen all the stuff on Twitter and, you know, OpenAI has been a longtime customer of weights and biases. So, you know, we get excited about all the stuff that they put out. I don't have any kind of deep insights on it, but I guess I will say the thing that I think everyone's noticed, which is that it's pretty impressive what it what it can do. And it's, I guess I started out in linguistics where, you know, people really wanted, you know, sort of lots of link, deep linguistic insights to build models that generate human looking language. But it sort of seems like the trend is just these very sort of almost like blank slate models do an unbelievably amazing job of mimicking human writing. What impact do you think GPT-3 will have? I mean, there's a lot of excitement around it that has tons of potential real-world applications. Any perspective there? I mean, I'll say my experience of GPT in general is that I think GPT-2 is also quite amazing. And I was surprised. This came out about a year ago with maybe a little less fanfare than GPT-3, but in my view, is almost as good and, and quite impressive of generating human-looking text. But the thing that I think is, is maybe the most interesting is that we haven't seen a lot of use cases come out yet. So like you would think that you know being able to sort of synthesize human text would lead to tons of applications, but maybe it's not yet kind of quite good enough to really make a realistic chatbot. Or, or maybe it is, right? I mean, I think once you know kind of computers can chat with you. And, and you can't tell the difference between a human and a computer, it does feel like we're in a totally different world. But I would say that's not like my area of expertise. That's sort of, just sort of me pontificating on the topic. A few questions on company building in the machine learning tooling space. So you don't have one specific tool that you're offering with weights and biases. It's more like a collection of tools. Why are you taking this approach in company building? Like the typical company building approach is you get some very specific wedge into a market and then you find upsells and you find lateral products. This feels like more of like a collection of somewhat disconnected products. Do you feel that way? Or or maybe you could tell me your your strategy when it comes to machine learning tooling. Totally. I mean, I do think that the, the tools are pretty connected. So, you know, we try to make all the tools work together 
super well, but we also don't want people to be kind of forced into like, you know, a waste and biases only ecosystem. And I think that was really just because we were listening carefully to what our customers were asking for. So, you know, there, there are a lot of companies out there that do a complete kind of end-to-end machine learning platform. And I think that sort of makes more sense as a investment, right? You'll probably get more VCs to purchase that. But the challenge with that is that customers don't want it. So what we want to do is basically build the thing that customers want. And we think that what they want is, is a set of tools. And we sort of have a wedge. I'd say that our first tool that we built, the experiment tracking tool has been super popular and it's kind of what we're known for. So in a way you could think of us using that as a wedge that kind of encourages people to use other tools. But I mean, a wedge sounds a little aggressive with customers. I mean, I might say it's like, like a really useful initial thing that starts a conversation. And then the space is moving so fast that we are able to build our other tools kind of in conversation with our customers. Last question. What is the biggest technical problem that you have right now at Weights and Biases? What's the biggest unsolved technical challenge? I would say the, the, the problem that feels like hair on fire right now, I think is, and this is sort of a general answer, maybe it's a lame answer, but it really is scaling. So, you know, we never had at my last company, Crowdflower, like a, a tool that tens of thousands of people used every day. I'd say at Weights and Biases, we didn't expect the growth for the experiment tracking that we've had. And we also didn't expect the different ways that people would use our tool. So people are logging a lot more data than we thought and in a lot more diverse ways. And so literally just kind of making the visualizations fast off of the data that people are streaming into us is probably the biggest challenge that the technical team is thinking about every day. I mean, of course, yeah, you know, we also think about like how do we make our interfaces intuitive and nice, but those are less technical and a kind of more UI. The big technical thing is like our tool can never go down. It can never lose people's data. Those are hard requirements. But then the piece that I think, you know, we keep thinking about is how do we make this fast and how do we make kind of more of the use cases fast? Like I'll give you an example. I mean, we thought people might log thousands of hyperparameters, but we weren't prepared for people logging millions of hyperparameters, but that's important to some. Or, you know, we thought that People might run, you know, kind of thousands of runs in a hyperparameter search, but, you know, OpenAI will typically run millions of runs in, in some of their hyperparameter searches. And so um, this sort of like difference and sort of massive extra use that we weren't expecting has, has created a whole bunch of database optimization challenges. Okay. Well, Lucas, it's been great talking to you. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much. 